Welcome to the Wood Podcast, where we explore solutions to some of the world's most critical challenges in energy and the built environment. I'm your host, Lauren Gallagher. Thank you for joining episode one of two on mining towards 2050. Today, wood experts will discuss the commodities and market outlook and building resilience for our future. Are commodities today following typical supply demand patterns? Is this period of volatility different from others? How is the mining industry being impacted and why is it proving to be more resilient than others? Today's global mining experts have lots of rich insight and solutions to share on these important questions. I would like to introduce David Bleicher, Wood's mining sector leader for environment and infrastructure. During his 25 year consulting career, he's become a leading voice in tailings management. He has a strong expertise in hydrology, hydrogeology, geotechnical and conceptual studies, and has worked on numerous landmark projects related to mine waste management, mine closure and water management. David is based in Toronto. Hey Lauren, thanks for having me. Glad to be here today. Also joining us is Mike Walashuk, Wood's technical leader for mineral processing. Mike also leads Wood's global mining consulting group for mining and minerals. A former partner and head of process engineering for Canada's largest precious metals focused private equity fund, Mike brings 25 years of experience in the mining industry, including operations, capital projects and corporate development. His commodity experience includes gold, silver, nickel, cobalt, copper, and uranium. An Australian-Canadian, Mike is based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is a two-time Asia-Pacific men's championship curler. Welcome, Mike. Yes, thank you, Lauren. And we also have Julian Sparks, Wood's mining strategy lead. He has 15 years of experience in capital projects in the nuclear and mining industries. Throughout his career, he has worked for large global engineering and construction companies and client organizations in the UK and South America. Originally from South Africa, Julian is based in Santiago, Chile. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you all for joining today. The pandemic has disrupted global commodity markets, trade and supply and demand dynamics, creating major uncertainty over the pace of recovery. We're seeing gold hit record prices and iron ore hit multi-year highs. What are you seeing in the markets today and why? Let's start with you, David. Well, there's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of facilities have had to go offline while they clean up or, or health and safety concerns, particularly at, uh, at remote camps, fly-in, fly-out camps, et cetera. So that impacts, our, that impacts the supply side. <clears throat> On the demand side, we've got, a, we've got a challenge in that it's not clear what the economy is going to be like a few months out or, or a year out. With the hospitality industry maybe not coming back for a while, it's, it's questionable whether manufacturing can keep on going. Now, hopefully everything goes great, but it just leads to a lot of uncertainty and that affects investment decisions. I, that, that David's right. Uh, and we're seeing a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, and if you go back more than 10 years to 2009, uh, when we had the first major economic crash, crash or crisis, um, that kicked off a major mining boom, which built on the back of another mining boom. We entered a new term in the dictionary of mining, which is a super price cycle, something we'd never had before, where in three or four years, prices rocketed up to three, four, five times their initial values and then rocketed straight back down. And that ended and we entered sort of a lull in the industry, but things were pretty steady until COVID happened. Now, it's caused a huge interference in the market. Um, in terms of gold, you're seeing what Gold is typically a safe haven. So when 
pretty much all investments are suffering. And when government bonds, you know, the treasury bonds are devaluing faster than they can produce value, investors have need somewhere to go. And they've gone to gold and that's that's a very clear signal. Um, iron ore, we're, uh, we are, we've seen a huge increase in demand and a huge increase in production. Um, and that's that this is Chinese driven and that's going to happen. But so what you're going to see because of what um, COVID has done to the markets is even more volatility. Uh, prices are going to go up faster. They're going to go down faster. And we're not sure if this is going to lead to a sort of what you are another mining boom yet. Uh, the indications would be that yes, it is. But for the moment, uh, it, it, the biggest result is increased volatility. Mike, with your gold expertise, I'm particularly interested in hearing your thoughts. Yeah, I think Julian touched on it, uh, Lauren. Uh, you know, the volatility in the market. This is uh, an election year in the U.S. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of media coverage uh, about the U.S. and China trade trade war, if you want to use that label. So those are all drivers about what's pumping up the gold price. And uh, of course, silver has followed it and uh, has surpassed, uh, I guess, the the percentage increase from the beginning of the year. So, you know, with base metals, we're seeing that they're all, they've all rebounded. Uh, so uh, copper, nickel, zinc, they're all achieving pricing that is above, you know, pre-COVID levels. So, uh, you know, Julian touched on iron ore. We are seeing, uh, you know, a recovery in China importing large quantities of iron ore. So uh, all of these uh, metals are trending in the right direction. And uh, I think my personal feeling is that, uh, you know, from the lows at the end of March, it's a good sign for the industry uh, that we're perhaps beginning a cycle that uh, we haven't seen in, in more than a decade. So it sounds like it will take some time to fully understand the impact of the crisis on demands for different commodities as a multi-year recovery emerges along with the prospect of long-term changes in consumption. Now let's dive a little deeper into the mining industry and how it's been impacted. The top 40 mining companies globally in 2020, which represent the majority of value in the whole industry, are so far proving to be more resilient than other sectors in the wake of the pandemic. A recent market report suggests that the top 40 miners will take a hit of approximately 6% EBITDA. What can we attribute this modest hit to? If you're looking at the top miners, Lauren, you're talking about large corporations that have good portfolios. And you can't stress having a portfolio enough in, in terms of the mining industry. It's a, a lot of the commodities when one goes up, another goes down. That's the nature of our industry. And you, it's the, lar the larger, the big corporations that are out there, they have these portfolios set up to, to give themselves a balance. So when one is going up, another is going down, and they can continue to provide value to their shareholders year after year. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see that pretty much reflected, that 6% uh, that decrease is really very, very small compared to what we're seeing out there from other industries and other and and other uh, sort of businesses. Now, if you're talking about, yeah, each of these portfolios are built out of assets. And then you get to a point where you start talking about asset quality, which is in terms of the ability to produce uh, whatever it is that mine produces at a low operating cost. 
So if you, to give you an example, I would say in Western Australia, if you look at the iron ore producers there, they have a very low operating cost. So at the moment, the iron part of their portfolios is producing an enormous amount of profit. You've got a low operating cost, a huge price. They're just raking in the cash. And that sort of makes it up because if you go a couple of years back, iron was really low and they weren't making much money at all. Uh, they were sort of starving out the, the small companies. Now they're sitting on excellent assets, building uh, sort of huge profits uh, into their quarterly and yearly statements. Um, and that is essentially what has driven most of these large corporations through. And what do you say, David? Yeah, Julian, I'd like to build a bit on on that and, and what you said earlier. Uh, you know, mining is a cyclical industry, right? So the prices go up and down, and, and it's no secret that we had that super cycle a few years ago. And not, you know, within the industry, the industry will acknowledge not all of the investment decisions made at the height of that cycle were great investment decisions. So it feels like, you know, we've spent the last several years getting balance sheets in order and, and fixing, you know, some of the previous excesses. Now it, it seemed like we were just getting to the point where the balance sheets were in pretty good shape. And then along came the coronavirus and slowed everything down. So the good news is that, you know, those major mining companies, their balance sheets are in good shape. They've got their cash costs really low, which allows them to weather out a storm like coronavirus fairly well. It's really an indication of the financial discipline that the mining industry has had in place for the for the last few years. Yeah, I think um, you know we're seeing a modest impact on on EBIT uh, in the mining industry. Um, you know there has been some production implications. Uh, about a third of the largest 150 mining companies have published reserve uh, revised guidance rather. So. Uh, you know, there's that, that's part of the reason. But mining companies have the ability to offset some of that revenue drop by, uh, you know, uh, delaying discretionary capital expenditures. So we've seen that, uh, you know, there's the impact is, is estimated to be about 10 to 15 percent reduction in capital spending due to the virus. So that, that somewhat offsets it. There's been a big focus on the miners uh, to get that cost base down and a big effort on margin improvement. So in terms of timing, uh, to to uh, you know a pandemic hitting this year, there there been a lot of effort uh, you know that gone gone uh, to the margin improvement. I think uh, again on the discretionary side, not a lot of greenfield exploration. Companies are focusing on on that near mine site exploration to uh, to get their resources uh, replace their resources. We're also seeing um, uh, a sign of recovery uh, already uh, this year. Um, you know, with the exploration activity increasing, uh, the exploration index, which is a measure of, you know, the activity in the in the industry is, is uh, right now as high as it has been in two, since 2013. So we, we've seen uh, uh, more juniors getting funding, uh, more exploration, which is going to drive study work and, uh, and uh, you know, project development. Yeah, and Mike, I, I don't think we've seen the, at least the big companies, move their base assumptions for metal prices up you know, the, the numbers that they're using to base investment decisions on. I think gold is still, you know, the big guys are still assuming twelve to $1,400 an ounce for investment decisions, right? So it's still a very conservative outlook and, and the decisions are still made in a very conservative way. Yeah, you're right. Uh, those are the numbers you're seeing and, you know, looking at, uh, at reserve uh, values. So there's a, obviously a significant margin above what, what uh, the companies are using. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, historically, when metal prices have gone to high levels, uh, um, you know, there's a tendency, perhaps, for the industry to uh, 
overcapitalize and spend big on expansions. And when the metal prices then come down, you all of a sudden have material that's below the cutoff. So they're, they're, they're taking a more cautious approach, yes. So David, you hit on that point about top mining companies having had a relatively modest impact, but you've also said there remains a very cautious approach moving forward. Miners are not immune to what the future may hold. Where are you seeing mining companies focus their priorities in the near term? So the industry is prioritizing you know, lower risk projects, or at least what they perceive to be lower risk. So from the cost perspective, they're looking at expansions and deep bottlenecks or satellite deposits, things where they can basically increase their production relatively simply, as well as they're looking at JV. So we, we saw the JV set up in Nevada as well, which, which helps to spread risk. It's not just financial, though. I mean, you can reduce risk by, by getting a better path to social license and permits. And if you're, if you're looking at an existing site and expanding it, well, of course, that's, that's a little bit easier because the relationships are already set up, the permitting, you know, the regulators already know what you do and, and what to expect, and you've got experienced personnel in the area. So that, that de-risks the project. So, I mean, what we're seeing with these projects moving in is, is yes, they're, they're lower capex, you know, tens of millions of dollars, maybe into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and we're not seeing the two, three, four billion dollar projects in, in physically and socially challenging locations that may require a lot of infrastructure. What investors really want is much less risk and faster turnaround, right? Yeah, I think you're right, David. I think, uh, you know, to capitalize on short term metal price uh, jumps like this, people are focusing on, the, you know, near mine site opportunities. Uh, you know, when metal prices go up, the cutoff grade drops. And so material that was once waste now becomes profitable. So that's the immediate focus. Certainly in the gold space, we have been seeing a lot more project activity because of that, again, uh, you know, metal price driving project development. Uh, and, and these projects tend to be lower capital, um, you know, lower mine life. Uh, I think we'll start to see some activity in copper now that the price, uh, you know, price is, is getting to that $3 a pound level. Uh, and, but uh, but certainly the near mine site opportunities and uh, and, and predominantly uh, you know heavy focus in in, in gold projects is what's uh, the activity we're noticing. Gold gold is over two thousand again today. So it's uh, although we have a conservative industry and David really under he understated just how conservative our industry is. When you've got a price over 2000 and they're still estimating their projects with 1250 these are people who don't want to take risk and don't want to be exposed but gold is we're seeing gold projects pop up on our radar in north america in australia south africa well all over the african continent even places like kazakhstan you know these projects are popping up on our radar and uh, you know clients are starting to want to move towards execution and that is absolutely normal. It's uh, and it, it, we've, we've done just a tiny bit of research between sort of the, the price of commodities and capital expenditure that follows. And capital expenditure follows a, move, a, a dramatic movement in price. And this dramatic movement in price in gold, it will draw the dramatic movement in investment. 
So we've talked a little bit about gold and a bit about copper. When it comes to commodities, what's next? What we're seeing, uh, the gold is a direct reaction to um, sort of a global wave of fear running through investing markets and, well, economies across the globe printing money um, to, well, to, to, to keep people from falling uh, into poverty or into starvation. Um, so that's what's driven gold. Now, as the crisis will come to a close when either they have an, an, a vaccine or somehow they solve this, you're going to see economies with a need to restart. And I think they're going to follow the Keynesian principle of let's go crazy on spending on big projects. So it's, you're going to see infrastructure, um, big infrastructure spending. And what do you need for big infrastructure spending? What do you need for transport, for industry, for all of that? You need iron, you need copper. Those are the two that you're going to need. So you're going to see those follow as the demand goes. I think what we're seeing in terms of iron might even be the Chinese getting ready. They are very centralized in the way they do this. And they could just be buying the iron and making steel because they know it's coming and they want to have it. And they don't want to pay $200 or $300 a ton for the stuff because they know what's coming. We might see that happen in copper. That's what we that's what we suspect will happen, because as economic activity starts to go, copper goes up. It's sort of the bellwether of the global economy. So copper is a big component of building, but it's also a key ingredient for electric vehicles. Given the future of electric vehicles and what the projections are today, is the current investment enough to meet the supply needs for the future or does something need to change? Yeah, I I think uh, we're going to see a, a significant demand uh, increase uh, due to a, a couple of things. Uh, you know, the emergence of the world's renewable energy sector uh, is going to drive the demand for some of these uh, battery minerals. So, uh, obviously, the decarbonization uh, initiatives, uh, so solar, wind power, uh, electric vehicles, uh, energy storage, all of those are going to require battery minerals. So, some of the projections are that by 2025, we're going to need uh, uh, eight times uh, the amount of lithium that is produced today. So uh, in, in copper, uh, by 2035, we're expecting 200 mine, mines scheduled for closure. And at the same time, we'll have to replace that supply as well as an increase in, in demand. So I think, you know, the, the picture is that there's going to be a lot of uh, battery minerals mines having to be built uh, in order to supply the, the demand and the shift. McKinsey indicates by 2030, there's going to be 340 million additional battery electric vehicles that will come onto the market. So in terms of global values, these metals uh, will increase uh, from you know, almost an order of magnitude in, in five years. And then another, uh, it'll double again uh, you know, in the next five. So we're, we're seeing probably unprecedented uh, projections in uh, the quantities that are of nickel and cobalt, lithium and, and uh, copper that are going to be required over the next 20 years. So almost every time you hear the word decarbonization, you can substitute for a electrification. And when we hear electrification, we should think copper, because every time we get rid of an internal combustion engine, we're pretty much replacing it with an electric motor. And that motor requires copper. And then getting the electricity to the motor requires more copper. And then updating the system so that it can deliver that much electricity requires more copper. 
So I'm a big believer in, in copper demand moving forward and how copper is tied with decarbonization of the industry. Storage is the other big part of uh, decarbonizing uh, the grid, right? So we want to use renewable energy, um, but it's not as reliable in all conditions, all atmospheric conditions as, as burning carbon. So we need storage. And if we want to be mobile, we need additional battery storage. So there's a lot of uh, speculation, people trying to predict the future on what metals and minerals are going to be required. And, and we've seen this a fair bit. And, and if you're an Elon Musk fan like myself, you hear the, you know, you hear him talking about nickel. So I think we're going to see price gyrations as people try to try to guess what the new technology is. And, and as everybody tries to predict the future. You shouldn't try to predict the future. It's, uh, and that's what happened to lithium. About three years ago, it suddenly went into a hyper price cycle, uh, which was not justified because the demand wasn't there yet. And so now things are back. It's, uh, I wouldn't say the lithium price is bad at the moment. Our customers, are, they're still making money. But it, it, all the bit, Bitcoin hyper investors went chasing after lithium and uh, it didn't come to reality. But it's a lot of uh, strategic theorists say that this is a, the hysteria is a phase. Then there is sort of a barren period, which is what we're going through now, before it becomes a reality. And lithium and battery minerals will become a reality. You know, just like cell phones 10 years ago, some people didn't have them. You know, everything around us, uh, people don't realize what's being mined. Uh, you, you know, you put laundry detergent in your, uh, you know, to, to, to wash your laundry and, and guess where the, uh, you know, uh, primary ingredient comes from, uh, you know, soda ash that's been mined. So. You know, we're all familiar about the, the, the metallic things around us, and we understand that copper is mined, but, uh, you know, the, the amount of uh, metals and minerals that are in our electronics, uh, in our transport systems, uh, in the automobiles we drive, uh, you know, building materials, you name it, uh, it is around us. And, and I think we have to find a way, and the industry is, is in it because through investor demand, uh, to find ways to do it so that, you know, all of the stakeholders are beneficiaries of, of mining. Someone taught me a very simple phrase. If you don't grow it, you mine it. So take a look around you. you know, if it wasn't grown, it was mined. And with the exception of, of lumber and maybe a few other things that we grow, uh, most of the agricultural industry is dependent upon mining because you know, we, we mine the fertilizers. So there's really no way that we can maintain our, our lifestyle or the population uh, without mining. Based on our conversations around the mining sector outlook and shifting behavior, what's key for companies to build resilience in the future? Mining companies need to start off with balanced portfolios and with good assets and with the ability to follow the volatility in the market. They're, they need to have systems in place so that as things change quickly, they can change quickly with them. But they also need to be able to have the follow-through in terms of stakeholder engagement and bringing through so that investors and the new categories of investors who are chasing safety and chasing environmental and social good will follow them on a long, patient journey. Well, eventually there's going to be capital investment, right? And, and eventually big projects will go. So because eventually um, investors are going to see a risk reward ratio that they want to invest in. 
In the meantime, it's a great time to pick up projects, establish joint ventures to spread out the risk, establish relationships with communities, etc., so that you're ready when the time comes to drive it forward. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, uh, um, Lauren, on this one. I think, you know, there has to be a benefit to all key stakeholders. Um, you have to have uh, social, social acceptance in our industry, and I think that's a process that starts early on. I think the other one is, uh, you know, for resiliency, it, it it goes to the quality of the assets. So, you know, we, uh, this industry is cyclical. Uh, we're going to see metal prices go up and down. It always has. And I think you want to have assets that can withstand those uh, pricing cycle environments and still maintain margins that are profitable. And that brings us to the close of episode one of two of Mining Towards 2050, where we talked about the mining commodity outlook and building resilience for the future. If you'd like to connect with today's guests or explore related insights on mining, please visit us at woodplc.com slash podcast, where you can also subscribe and receive updates to the Wood Podcast. At Wood, our curiosity keeps us pushing, innovating, making the impossible possible. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. Take care and be well.